Church, it's good to be back. We had a nice vacation. We were gone two weeks. Um, we went down to Northern California, spent some time with our family and, and friends there, and then we drove down to Southern California and spent time with uh, our, our kids down there. And um, if you haven't heard the news, my daughter-in-law is pregnant with identical twins, and uh, she's going to have twin baby girls. And so... Uh, uh, instead of boys, we have twins, which I think will be great. I had two boys. Now I'm looking forward to having two girls in our family. So it's good to, good to be back. First uh, Samuel chapter 17, I started a series through First and Second Samuel on the life of David. And now we come to a pivotal point where David meets that um, huge, ugly giant of a man who really is a dwarf, so to speak. He's got a He's got a pea-sized heart. So I, I invite you to pull out those message notes and follow along. And I'd like to pray one more time. Lord, I'm asking this morning that you'd help me to share this word and make it applicable to our lives. I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that your word is applicable to our lives. I thank you, Lord, that uh, you said that we're to be doers of the word and not just hearers. I'm asking you this morning that you'd help us to uh, do something with this message that you would make it dear and near and dear to us, and that we could, again, make application, make it apply to our lives today and this next week and next few months. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. I heard a story recently. I heard a story about three sisters. There were three elderly sisters that lived together, and one was 96 years old, one was 94 years old, and one was 92 years old. And the 96-year-old went upstairs, and she began to run the bathwater. And she got her foot in the tub, and all of a sudden, she could not remember whether she was getting in the tub or out of the tub. And she yelled downstairs, and she said to her sisters below, she said, I can't remember whether I'm getting in the tub or out of the tub. Well, the 94-year-old sister responded and said, hang on just a second. I'll come upstairs, and I'll help you out. So the 94-year-old sister uh, uh, went upstairs, and she was halfway up the stairs, and she stopped, and she said, I can't remember whether or not I was coming up or going back down. The 92-year-old sister shook her head and said, Boy, I hope I never get that forgetful knock on wood. Then she said, Hang on, I'll come up and help you both out as soon as I find who is at the front door. (laughs) Kind of silly, huh? I hope that we never forget. There are some things that I hope that we never forget, especially as we face uh, giants in our life. Today, again, we focus on that particular scene of David versus Goliath, or David versus the big little man, or David versus the huge giant with a pea-sized heart. I remember reading uh, a number of years ago, uh, in, in, in 1501, in 1501 there was an unformed huge block of, of uh, marble, and it sat for a number of years untouched in the cathedral workshop, in the cathedral workshop in Italy. Three years, three years after Michelangelo first saw that block, remember the great painter and the great sculptor, three years, three years after he saw this huge 
block of marble in 1504, Michelangelo finished a, a sculpture piece. It was perhaps the most famous sculpture piece ever created. It stands 13 and a half feet in height. And I've seen pictures of it. I've never seen it in person. It is standing today at the Florence Galleria della Accademia. And it is a sculpture of David. It's a sculpture of David. And, and when you see pictures of this particular sculpture, you see it in great detail. David as a teenager. 15, 16, 17-year-old teenager. And the veins in his neck are sticking out. There's so much detail. And you see the veins in the back of his hands. And the nostrils are seemingly exhaling at the same time. And the belly muscles are contracting. The chest is lifting. He's a young warrior with, you might want to say, uh, delicate musician hands. And his eyes are filled with determination. And Michelangelo also depicted David with a sling over his shoulder with a look of determination and trust and faith and hope that God was going to do the miraculous. He was going to do something great and significant in David's life. In my mind, Michelangelo's statue of David represents the true character of David. If you've been with me through this particular message, we've already discovered that this young teenage boy had a surrendered heart. In a heartbeat, he was endeavoring to do the will of God and the will of his father. He had a servant's heart. He was willing to do whatever his earthly father wanted him to do and his heavenly father. And he had a sound heart. He was a young person filled full of integrity. And the last time we met together, we said that David was anointed a new king of Israel. But no one knew about it. None of his uh, friends, you might want to say, outside of his family, no one knew he was elected king. And he went back to the sheepfolds. He went back out serving the sheep. Let me set the scene of our story. Chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. It says that the scripture that got through reading earlier, it says that the children of Israel were camped on one side of a vast canyon and the Philistines were on the other side of this vast area. And the battle wasn't between to these two armies, however. Uh, each From each side of the valley, there was going to be a representative, a representative. So the Israelites are on one side of the valley of Elah, and this valley is about a mile wide, and the Philistines are on the other. And of course, the big little man that we've got through talking about, his name was Goliath, is the leader and the fighting champion from Gath for the Philistines. And look what Scripture says in verse 4, one more time, about Goliath. He was a champion. He had never lost, who was good from Gath. He came out of the Philistine camp, he was over nine feet tall. Nine feet tall. Um, another scripture says he was six cubits in height. And we don't measure in cubits any longer. We measure in feet and we measure in inches. But I took my measuring tape and I measured from this uh, 
this floor down here where this um, laminate is, all the way up to the cross, and is nine feet, one inch tall. Goliath was at least, we believe, nine feet, nine inches tall. His head would have been up in the ceiling. He was taller than any person that we can... Um, in, in, even in modern day history, there is no one, I believe, that's taller than nine feet, nine inches tall. There have been people that have been eight feet tall, but he was huge. He was, uh, he would have made Shaquille O'Neal, remember the NBA basketball players for the Los Angeles Lakers, he would have made Shaquille O'Neal look like a shrimp. He was absolutely mammoth in size, and he wasn't skin and bones either. Look at verses five and seven one more time with me. It says that he had a bronze helmet on his head. He, he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels. He also had bronze leggings, and he had a bronze javelin. And the shaft on the spear, it says, was like a weaver's beam, and the head of the spear weighed 600 shekels. In other words, 25 pounds. 25 pounds. Church, he was wearing a full coat of mail also. You see, the Philistines garbed themselves with... Um, for battle with a heavy canvas-like undergarment interlaced interlaced with overlapping ringlets of bronze. This coat of mail went from his shoulders all the way down to his knees, and it weighed in excess of 200 pounds. Now, are you getting the picture in your mind? He's got these bronze leggings. He's got this bronze helmet. He's got this um, coat of mail on his body, and we figure that he had over three hundred pounds, 300 pounds he was carrying around, and he would carry it around like we would carry around a five-pound backpack. He was huge. Nine feet, nine inches tall, carrying around this 300 pounds of armor on him. And allow yourself to picture this imposing sight for just a moment. A man almost as tall as a basketball hoop had such long arms that he could touch the top of a basketball back, backboard. So massive with his uh, muscles and with his girth that he could easily carry around several, several hundred pounds of armor on his body. Imagine how frightening it would be to take on a giant so huge. And talk about that ugly, mean, menacing face. When I think about Goliath, I think that he hit the ugly tree and he hit every branch on the way down. Mammoth, ugly, menacing, full of hatred. Notice what this gigantic warrior did. Look at verses 8 through 9 with me. He shouted, the Bible says, he shouted at the Israelites, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me and fight me. If he is able to kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I beat him and kill him, then we will become your servants. What Goliath suggests is a tactic commonly was, that was commonly used in the Eastern world. Fight, in other words, a one-on-one -on -one battle. We have our champion, you choose your champion, and instead of both armies fighting, instead of losing hundreds and thousands of people in this battle, it will be a one-on-one -on -one fight. Goliath didn't issue this challenge one time and leave. Scripture tells us day and evening, twice a day, 
day after day after day after day for 40 days straight down the slope of where he was at and his army was camped. He walked down that slope, walked across the valley of Elah, and he shouted up to the Israelite people day after day after day for 40 days straight, challenging them, swearing at them, cursing God Almighty, flaunting his size, and flaunting his strength. Now, here's observation number one I want to make this morning. Observation number one I want to make this morning. In facing giants, in facing giants, the giants we face, and we call giants problems, trials, difficulties, whatever name you want to put on them, in facing the giants in our lives, giants often use, often use, they primarily use Fear and intimidation at first. Fear and intimidation and threats to keep us defeated. So we need to stay strong and courageous. Strong and courageous. If we were to take a survey this morning and had to categorize our giants, they would be the following. A habit. Drugs, alcohol, addiction. Financial giants. Relationship giants. Work-related giants, family-related giants, emotional giants. And often these giants come at us morning, noon, and night, and often they use intimidation and they use fear. Why do you think the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Because they often like to get you to the place where you're afraid even to get out of bed. Often at the place, I'm so fearful, I'm so afraid we're going to go bankrupt. I'm so fearful, I'm so afraid that I'm going to lose out as far as my job is concerned. I'm so fearful, I'm so afraid that my kids won't have anything to do with me. I'm so fearful, I'm so afraid that if I take that stand, I may suffer the consequences for that. Fear and intimidation. And, And we need to stay strong and courageous. If um, if the God of this world, old Snaggletooth, I'm talking about Satan's cohorts, and all the giants you face, they love to intimidate and to paralyze us into inactivity and stop us in our tracks. We're utterly frozen and you're fearful, so afraid of what might happen. Fear of failure, fear of unemployment, fear of disease. I want you to listen to David's 27th Psalm. Listen to David's 27th Psalm. Whom shall I dread? Whom shall I fear? And he answers that the rhetorical questions, my heart will not fear in spite of everything. I shall be confident in the Lord who loves me and who has my best interest at heart. He will rescue me and he will protect me. Now years ago, I found a lump on my body where a lump should not be. And I imagined all kinds of things. I rationalized, no big deal. I prayed, I worried. What if it's something after all? What if it is cancer? I grew fearful, afraid. A fear of the unknown was taking over my life. Finally, I did something about it. I went to a doctor, had an examination done, had special tests done. And it was nothing. 
Did you know that 97%, they've done all kinds of studies, 97% of what you worry about and what you're consumed with and what you get up in the morning worried about and what you have that white-knuckled anxiety about in the evening time and what disturbs your sleep, 97% of the stuff that you worry about, that I worry about, never ever comes to fruition. Never ever. Somebody has said that worry and, 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 and having fear is like stewing without doing. It's like rocking in a rocking chair back and forth and it doesn't accomplish anything whatsoever. (laughs) You remember the words that uh, God gave Joshua. He had to cross the Jordan River at flood stage with hundreds and thousands of the children of Israel and they had no way to get across. There were no bridges. There were no platoon boats. There were no... uh, um, any help whatsoever? I mean, you know, he had, they had to get across, and it's flood stage. It's as wide as a as a football field is long, and it's and the river is roaring down through there. And he had to talk with God, and he was giving God all his worries and concerns. And you remember what God said to Joshua? He said, "Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous." What's he telling him? My vernacular, Pastor Rod here. Don't be like a puppy dog with your tail between your legs. Don't run away afraid in, in cowardice. Face your problems. Face your fears. Don't run away. Don't be inactive. Don't just sit on the, uh, like a bump on the log. Face them. For I will deliver you. That's what he said to Joshua. So they often come in our life and they use fear and intimidation in our lives. So there's a war going on. Uh, about ready to happen. And while Goliath is bellowing his threats and using fear and intimidation, Jesse sends David to the front lines to check on his brothers with supplies. And Jesse calls him in. And look at verses 17 and 18 with me this morning. He said, I want you to take some roasted grain, wheat thins, okay, and ten loaves of bread to your brothers. Bring some cheese also to their commander and see how your brothers are doing. Now, uh, remember, David uh, has been anointed the new king of Israel. The spirit of the living God has fallen afresh on him in a powerful way. But no one knows about it except for his family. So he does what his father wants him to. I want you to go check on your brothers. I want you to bring the supplies. And so he goes to the uh, person who, who checks in all the stuff. And, and, uh, and, he, and he goes and he gives them the supplies that his father wants to take and Etc. And then he goes to the front line. David did not know that that was the day. Goliath did not know that that would be the last day of his life. There were no forewarning. There were no signals. There were no uh, lights going off. There were no thunder. There were no lightning. They, he did not know that was going to be the last day of his life. It was the 41st day. 41st day, and David doesn't know that he's going to be thrust into public ministry. As far as he knows, he's just checking up on his brothers. Here's observation number two. Often the giants, and often the problems, and often the situations we find ourselves in, the giants or problems we face can at any time come at us from anywhere, can come at us 
from anywhere, at any time from anywhere. So be ready. You remember what Jesus said? He said, when I will come back, I'll come like a thief in the night. Be ready. When the sun popped up on that morning and Goliath issued his 41st day of challenges, no one knew that he would, that would be the last day of his life and the first day again of David's public ministry. And David enters the camp after leaving the stuff in the, in, in the care of the baggage keeper and he runs to the battle line to greet his brothers. And in verse 23, look at it with me. Look at it with me. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Goth, stepped out from the lines and shouted, notice in the NIV it says, his usual defiance, and David heard it. What did he shout? We don't know for sure, but we can conject, you know, we can uh, put some conjecture with it. You yellow berry uh, belly cowards, you mama boys, you sissies over there, why don't you send someone to fight me? You think you serve your God. Your God is nothing. And he shouted out all of those things that he was shouting, and he challenged him for the 41st day. And what was David's response? This little 15, 16-year-old, 17-year-old teenager, I call him wet behind the ears. Sorry if you're a teenager. I just use that term, wet behind the ears. This young teenager, the Bible says, was livid. He was livid. He was upset. He was angry. He could not believe his ears. In my paraphrase, David basically said, no one talks that way about my people and no one talks that way about my God. He was livid with anger. And look what David does next, verse 26, with me. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this, notice, this disgrace from Israel? That's a nice word. It's really more potent than that. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David asked the question, what will be done for the person who kills this uncircumcised Philistine? What will be done for him? For who? is this uncircumcised fellow saying all these things. David basically saying again, I cannot believe my ears. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? We have a problem. We have a giant of a problem. And I'm ready to do something about it. Now I'll remind you, in Ephesians chapter 6 it says, the day of evil comes every single day. The day of evil comes every single day. Don't be surprised, Scripture says, by the various trials and the, by the various difficulties that you face and that you are going through. It is common. It happens. The question is not if, but when. And are you ready for such trials and difficulties? Because they very seldom ever give us any forewarning. Very seldom. I read a story that kind of illustrates how life can happen all of a sudden. It happened, I read, I read about, uh, about it two years ago. It was in the Modesto Bee in Central California. We got the paper. We lived up in the foothills. 
and it caught my attention. Toddler falls, the, the, the title of the art, Toddler falls eight stories. Falls eight stories. Here's the story. Police say an 18-month-old boy survived a fall from an eight-story window off an apartment building in France, Paris, France, by bouncing off an awning and into the arms of a passerby apparently uninjured. Police said they detained the parents of the baby boy for questioning. And according to police, and according to this particular article, the parents were out for a stroll and left the three-year-old and the 18-month-old in the apartment on the eighth story. And somehow, they don't know how, the 18-month-old pushed the window open and then got out of the ledge, fell off, went eight stories down, just like that, hit the awning, and bounced right into the arms of a passerby, just a person. No scratches, little bit of bruising, no permit damage. Amazing. You just never know when something is going to happen. You just never know. We face giants at any time, anywhere, in trials and difficulties, something could happen. So be ready. Be ready. Again, Ephesians 6 says, the day of evil comes every single day. Well, David says, what will be done for the person? And in verse 27, the people said, after David inquired about the reward, and that he, uh, and that in the context tells us he was so living and angry at Goliath, and they said, yes, there, yes, there is a reward for the person who kills Goliath. Yes, there is a reward. You see, uh, King Saul had devised an incentive for the person that would face Goliath. He had devised an incentive for him, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But you know, really, if you think about it, King Saul should have been the person that faced Goliath, right? After all, we read that King Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was the one that had the military might. He was the one that had the bronze for the children of Israel. But instead of leading, instead of going out and fighting Goliath, King Saul is shaking in his boots. He's afraid. Remember, he hasn't been serving God. He hasn't been being obedient to God. And God has removed his hand of favor, and Saul is shaking in his boots, and he's trying to find someone that will face Goliath. And so he gives this incentive. He basically says in the passage of Scripture we read, hey, there are three things that will happen. If you beat Goliath, if you face him and beat him, first of all, you and your family won't have to pay taxes. Isn't that great? You won't have to pay taxes anymore. And number two, you'll receive all kinds of riches. And number three, you're going to receive my daughter's hand in marriage. You would think that there would be all kinds of people lined up, but they took one look at that ugly, huge giant, and they said, no way, Jose. No way, Jose. There wasn't a single volunteer. By the way, I want you to notice Goliath's position on the 41st day. If you go back to verse 8, notice, he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them these things, choose for yourselves a man and let him come down to me. As I said, he has been in the valley of Elah. He has come down the slopes, crossed the valley, 
and he has been right at the very edge of the valley of Elah for 40 days straight. But now look at verse 25. And this is where, I love the NIV, but sometimes the NIV misses something, and I think another translation is better. And in verse 25, another translation, and you go back to the original language, they have this, it says, Have you seen this man, speaking of Goliath, who is coming up? Who is coming up? No longer is he stationary. No longer is he at the bottom of the hill. But now he is walking up the hill, building his challenge on the 41st day. And I think that that is very, very significant. Imagine, one more time with me, the Philistines are on one side of the valley and the Israelites on the other side. And Goliath, for 40 days, comes down from his side in the valley, comes to the edge of the valley, and yells up at the Israelites. And on the 41st day, however, he's now moving from the valley floor, and he's making his way up the slope toward the Israelites. Goliath has crossed the ravine, and he is at not only the base of the valley, but he's moving up on the Israelites' side. Here is observation number three I want to make this morning. Observation number three, the giants we face, the giants we face, if tolerated and not confronted, will often take over areas of our lives. The giants that we face, if tolerated and not confronted, often will take over areas of our lives. So fight and slay those giants as quickly as possible. Fight and slay those giants as quickly as possible. Going back to Ephesians chapter 6, which is the spiritual warfare chapter, what does Paul say? say, He says, they all go together, 5 and 6, he says, don't give the devil a foothold in your life. You say, Pastor Ron, how do you give the devil a foothold in your life? How do you allow the enemy to take territory in your life? I believe that Apostle Paul was talking to Christian people. I believe that Christian people can be oppressed. Not possessed, but oppressed. And I believe that if we give in to willful sin, willful, habitual sin, that the enemy can gain a foothold in our life. You say, what is a foothold? Well, I can't describe it any other way than saying that it is some sort of inroad, it is some sort of ground, it is some sort of territory in our life. And it becomes even more difficult to serve the Lord once we give the devil a foothold in life. And you say, how is that done? It's done by giving in to willful sin, habitual sin, over and over and over and over again. We know we're supposed to keep short accounts with God. We know we're supposed to confess our sins on a regular basis. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about committing a sin. It's willful. It's wrong over and over and over and over again until all of a sudden the enemy has gained some sort of territory, a foothold, he might want to say, in our life. And it's Very, very difficult once that happens. You're dealing with an oppressive enemy that likes to gain ground in our lives. The illustration that comes to my mind years ago, as many of you know, I I did um, some carpentry and remodeling. And one time, the, the family friends of ours, this couple... They said, hey, we want you to um, turn our garage into a family room. And uh, 
So I began to take off some of the old sheetrock they had in the inside of their garage. And I discovered that those two-by-fours, those studs, were eaten up with termites. Ever have a termite problem? If you've ever had a termite problem, you know what I'm talking about. You don't want to have a termite problem. And they had eaten away most of the south side of that garage. Can you imagine that? You just got in there. And, and all it took was one. Because when you have one, then you have two, and then you have three, and then you have four, and then you have five. And they went in there, and they ate all of those term, uh, all of those studs here, and I was absolutely amazed that that wall could even stand up any longer. And they had to get a termite inspector, and uh, you know they had to do the whole thing, the treatment and everything else, and we had to put brand new material inside there before we could do anything else, and et cetera, et cetera. The Bible says, do not... Don't give the enemy of our souls a a foothold in our life. A foothold. He'll take over areas of our life. So fight giants as quickly as possible. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together.